You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I spent mine reconnecting with a college friend I hadn't seen since the before times, fighting with Adobe customer service, got my first negative review written about me, so that was fun, and it freaking snowed at my other job. We could see the snow coming out of the sky into the pond, and it's very weird having lived in Southern California for the last 12, 13 years, to look out of a window and just see snow-capped mountains. It's very, very strange. It's been a weird week. No movie theater movie reviews this week. I've been too cold to go outside and do things. So let's just get into the good stuff. So up until this point, every film we've covered at length on this podcast is a film you can typically actually go see. We've, of course, briefly talked about some lost films, but they, at least once upon a time, were available to be seen by the masses. This month, however, we'll be talking about films that were never seen by anyone at all because they were either never made or never finished. Hundreds, if not thousands of scripts are read every day across the entertainment industry in an attempt to find or perfect the next film that would hopefully make the studios lots and lots of money. Dozens of those films will eventually enter development or pre-production. Even fewer will ever make it up on the big screen. This week, we're looking at the saga of Superman Lives at Warner Brothers. Batgirl was far from the first DC film that Warner Brothers axed. Though, admittedly, that one got significantly further into the process than the movie we'll be discussing today. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Superman had been flying into people's homes and on the silver screen for over 40 years when our story begins. Before that, he'd been a comic book icon since his first appearance in the June 1938 cover-dated Action Comics No. 1. And over the years, particularly on the silver screen, though in the comics as well, Superman was anything but fresh. In 1987, the final Christopher Reeves Superman film, Superman IV The Quest for Peace, was released in theaters. Not only was it reviled by critics, it currently has a 10% score on Rotten Tomatoes, but it was also the lowest grossing film of the entire franchise. The film was the first in the franchise, which also included 1984's Supergirl, to be made without the prior film's producers, and featured a story that had been proposed by Reeves himself involving nuclear disarmament. 
All I needed to hear to know that this movie was going to be a dumpster fire was the fact that the film's villain is called Nuclear Man, who is not a DC character before this. And also the costume is one of the most 80s things I've ever seen. Also the dude's haircut. So a Superman 5 was planned by Canon Films, the production company that had made Superman 4. But Canon Films went bankrupt not long after. And the film rights of Superman were returned to Ilya and Alexander Salkins, who were two of the original owners of those aforementioned Superman film rights. Two years later, when Tim Burton's Batman hit theaters to massive success, Warner Brothers saw the potential of perhaps revamping the Superman franchise. To boot, in 1992 and 1993, the death of Superman comic book storyline had been so incredibly popular with comic book fans that it revamped the entire series. And Warner hoped that a film version would do the same for the silver screen iteration of Superman. One problem, Warner thought they had the rights to Superman, and they didn't. The Salkins did. Well, they had. In 1993, producer John Peters had acquired the Superman rights, which was news to Warner. But the two entities struck a deal that would see Peters producing a new Superman film for Warner Brothers. Once the ink dried, Peters hired Jonathan Lemkin to write a new script. Lemkin's script was completed in March of 1995 and was called Superman Reborn. This film saw Lois Lane and Clark Kent with relationship troubles and Superman battling with Doomsday, a monstrous genetically engineered being from the depths of prehistoric Krypton, which if you're not a comic book person, that is Superman's home planet. Governed by mostly hate and a desire for destruction, Doomsday went on a warpath of destroying worlds and eventually found Earth, where of course he'd have to go toe-to-toe with the planet's protector, Superman. The script had Superman profess his love to Lois as he lay dying after battling Doomsday, and his life force then jumps into Lois as he dies, and she ends up having their child as a result. This child would grow 21 years in about three weeks and become the new incarnation of the Caped Crusader. Is Caped Crusader Batman? I'm not super up on my DC. Man of Steel? He's the Man of Steel. I think Caped Crusader's Batman. My bad. Warner didn't like it because it was too similar to 1995's Batman Forever script, which is the George Clooney one with the nipple suit, three too many villains, and of course the additions of Batgirl. I think Robin was in the one before that as well. So Peters hired George Poirier to take over for Lemkin. This next version of the script featured the villain Brainiac, who is a bald, green-skinned humanoid who shrinks cities and puts them into bottles with the intent of using them to revitalize his home planet. In this version, that character would be the creator of Doomsday, the monster. In Poirier's script, Superman has romance problems with Lois Lane again and visits a psychiatrist before he is killed by Doomsday. An alien named Cadmus, a victim of Brainiac's prior carnage, then steals Superman's corpse. Superman is resurrected and then teams with Cadmus to defeat Brainiac. Powerless because of his existential tortures, Superman wears a robotic suit until his powers, which according to the script aren't like genetic, they're a mental discipline called Finyar, return. 
At Peters' request, Poirier had Superman wear an all-black suit instead of the regular blue, red, and yellow one. Though Poirier's script impressed Warner Brothers, it still wasn't quite what they wanted, and this version of the script was completely scrapped. In May 1996, still wanting to make a Superman film based on the death of Superman comics, the studio hired Kevin Smith, who at the time was one of the biggest indie filmmakers in town and a lifelong comic book nerd, to be the new Superman screenwriter. An opportunity the 26-year-old filmmaker eagerly accepted. Smith had made quite a splash after making his first film, Clerks, on a Rolodex of credit cards and was now being offered a chance to pen a multi-million dollar Superman film for one of the biggest studios in the world. Like, that's literally the dream. You make a little film and it, you know, leads to the biggest, one of the biggest jobs you can get. Before he got started, Warner Brothers gave Smith the script for Superman Reborn for reference, which he hated from the cover page and quickly renamed the film Superman Lives. Despite hiring Smith to write a script, the team of Warner Brothers executives already had an idea of what they wanted this proposed Superman film to be, and they had some changes they wanted to make to the storyline as well. This included the villain Brainiac as the big baddie, even though he's not present in the death of Superman storyline in the comics. So, yeah, that's a choice, but not an unusual one for studios who weren't really versed in how to integrate comic bookiness into these comic book movies it was just like making them too much like the comic books back then was kind of seen as like a bad thing which as we've learned recently it's not there's there's a marriage that is that is possible and that tends to be where these thrive the best but you know that wasn't really seen that way almost 30 years ago but you know what are you gonna do Uh, Anyway, Warner also wanted the plot of the film to include Superman losing his powers. So those were the two big ones for Warner Brothers. According to Smith, John Peters had some guidelines of what he wanted as well. Remember, he's the producer. And his guidelines, according to Smith, included that Superman would not be wearing his signature costume. It would be black. He didn't want Superman to be able to fly because he thought it looked hokey. Um, Instead, he wanted like the big jumps. Like you'll see some iterations of him just doing big jumps. And that's how he gets like the ability to appear to fly. But it's just inertia, basically. The big requirement was that John Peters wanted Superman to fight a giant spider in the film's climax. This would ultimately end up being Brainiac's character design when it got further into pre-production. For an image of what this is, if you've seen the first Toy Story film, uh, there's one of Sid's toys. It's like the baby head that's like on the crazy like spidery robot arms. It, It looked very similar to that. Peters would claim later that he never told Smith about the flying or the suit stipulations. But yeah, the spider Peters wanted real bad. The dude was like super obsessed in the videos I saw of him talking about this movie with like personifying animals or just giving characters like different animalistic qualities. I think the dude must have just had Animal Planet on all the time. Is Animal Planet still a channel? I'm a millennial. I haven't had cable in like 12 years. Anyway, without a director at the helm, which in hindsight I think was strategic on Peters' part, Peters began commissioning concept art, which included his big-ass spider, the first iteration of which had legs for days, the face of a tarantula, and the ability to secrete tiny spiders to attack Superman. Warner didn't like the idea of the giant spider, so to appease everybody, in the script, Smith called it a Thangarian snare beast. But if you polish a turd, it is still a turd. 
Eventually, Smith would finish his first draft of the screenplay, which he had to read to John Peters in person because, according to Peters himself, he is, quote, not a strong reader. So I guess upon he didn't read it. So upon hearing the script, Peters wanted to add guards to Superman's Fortress of Solitude. So there could be a fight at the Fortress of Solitude. And when Kevin Smith reminded him that the name of Superman's secret hideaway base was the Fortress of Solitude, Peters asked about adding polar bears instead. Like I said, dude loves animals. This comment baffled not only Smith, but the Warner execs as well. Ultimately, Peters was not impressed with the script that Smith handed in, for whatever that's worth. In issue number 92 of Wizard, the comics magazine, which hit shelves in 1999, Kevin Smith accounted which actors he'd wanted to play specific characters in the movie and kind of like who he had in mind when he was writing it. This included Ben Affleck as Superman, David Hyde Pierce as the Eradicator, and Jason Mewes, a.k.a. the J to Smith's Silent Bob, as Jimmy Olsen. Of course, these were just his opinions. Writers don't tend to choose who plays whom unless they're also directing the piece. And in this case, that ended up being Tim Burton, who was, according to one very unreliable source, we'll get to that later, was chosen by the actor the studio actually planned on playing Superman. By all other sources, however, that was not the case. There were a few actors hotter in the late 90s than Nicolas Cage. He just won his first Oscar in 1995 for Leaving Las Vegas, and he was the star of other 90s hit films like It Could Happen to You, City of Angels, and of course Con Air. And don't let his last name fool you, dude's a Coppola, so he is connected. And for Superman Lives, Nicolas Cage would be its Superman. Initially, director Rennie Harlan of Die Hard 2 fame was the studio's pick to direct, but Peters wanted Burton, as did Kevin Smith. According to Nicolas Cage, though, he handpicked Tim Burton and would only sign on if he was attached. Therefore, he would, as recently as 2022, take credit for securing Burton the job. I've seen interviews of Tim Burton talking about casting Nick Cage for this film, so I'm going to lean on the Burton, then Cage hiring, just because actors get told a lot of BS to placate them. But there, there are two different versions of what happened, and God only knows when it comes to stuff like this. Anyway, since Burton had given the studio a very successful Batman film, which spawned a successful sequel, before Warner made the far less successful Batman films directed by Joel Schumacher, though the really rough one hadn't come out yet, so they didn't exactly have to be strong-armed into agreeing to this. Burton was officially signed on to helm Superman Lives, as was Nicolas Cage to play its lead. As pre-production kicked off, key cast members began to fall into place, and they weren't anything close to what Smith had imagined when writing his script. Per the documentary, The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? Between Burton and Peters, the cast would include Christopher Walken as Brainiac, Kevin Spacey as Lex Luthor, who would actually play the character in 2006's Superman Returns, Sandra Bullock as Love Interest, Lois Lane. She turned on the role, however, and Chris Rock would play Jimmy Olsen, a photojournalist at the Daily Planet and Clark Kent's buddy. Ironically, when Rock got the news that he had been cast, he was shooting the Kevin Smith film Dogma. 
There was also an opportunity for Michael Keaton to make a cameo that was laid out in the screenplay, which Smith said was the whole reason he'd taken on the project, to make Batman appear in a Superman movie. Kevin Smith kind of was before his time in this way of putting other superheroes in other superhero movies. Once upon a time, that was a revolutionary notion. Kevin Smith's participation in Superman Lives ended in 1997 after Burton was officially brought on and he was replaced by Wesley Strick, who'd written Batman Returns for Burton. Burton, like Peters, had not liked Smith's script. He thought it read too much like a comic book fan wrote it, which, you know, was true, and wanted his own version. This version of the script would still be an adaptation of the Death of Superman comics and include The Big Ass Spider. When it came to the creation of the suit, it was anything but smooth sailing. Since the majority of the film circulated around Superman essentially recovering from being deaded, designs were made to essentially look like iridescent veins, like when he was for when he was healing, and this was accomplished by a series of LEDs sewn into a suit and then programmed that would kind of make you think like healing, I guess. I don't I don't know how to describe it. It's basically it looked like veins or sometimes it just looked like it, it's weirdly medical when they when lights beep at a certain speed. Oh, I guess it's supposed to maybe it kind of mimics the, the heartbeat monitors on the pole things when you're in the hospital. Maybe it's kind of like that idea. But you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, why does that mean healing? Just lights kind of moving up your body in such a way that it kind of looks like veins that we think, oh, it's it's fixing the problem. Anyway, early attempts at this were super funky and not in the good way. One version of it made it look like the character had like melted muscles, but it was a super and it was metal and like weird. Another version that was supposed to be clear so they could make it hella shiny, but then they couldn't make it clear enough, which means they couldn't make it sparkly enough. And also it was really, really thick. It was a latex looking material and it didn't move very well. And there's videos of them like at the uh, special effects shop, literally having to violently yank the person they were testing it out on out of this suit. And um, actors are temperamental at the best of times. So it wasn't really a feasible, even if it had worked, it's not really feasible for you to just have to violently yank your actor out of their costume at the end of each day. I mean, does anybody like being violently, like literally they were just... It looked like trying to get the most uncomfortable boots off of your feet, but it was your entire body is how hard like it's just they were just it took and it and it wasn't one person helping this person. It was like three guys trying to yank this dude out of this latex suit. It just is not going to happen. It's not feasible. It's not a feasible way of going about things. Eventually, they managed to vacuum form a bunch of plastic together to essentially make what looked like a bubble Superman suit. And it looked fine. For the 90s, it actually looked pretty decent. Given Like now they just do it with special effects and call it a day. If you, if you want, I recommend the documentary. You have to go on like a special website to rent it. Um, I have the links in the bio or the links in the show notes. But it's interesting to like just see how much of this they were working on doing practically versus like Marvel's just like, no, nah, just do it with a computer. It's fine. So for that, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, highly recommend. All of this was, you know, and all of it looked weird because the suit was supposed to be a form of K, who in the script replaced Cadmus. And Kay was an android companion that accompanied Kal-El, which is Superman's birth name, from Krypton and then grew up with him. They kind of described him as like almost like a teddy bear that grew with him as as Clark grew. 
When Superman died, Kay wrapped himself around him to save his life and ultimately give him back his powers. According to the design team, the rainbow suit, the bubble suit, and some of the other weirder elements that got a lot of flack from fans when the concept art began leaking later, including art for a neutrino bath. These things would have only been on screen for like two minutes. This was not going to be like long term what the dude was going to look like in the movie. When Kay eventually detached from Superman, a newer, darker Superman suit would be revealed, including a logo chest piece that could be taken off in pieces and used as weapons. It was a very dark blue, this suit, not black, and featured the traditional red accents sans the underpants. Peters wanted the cape to also be pseudo-sentient, think Doctor Strange's cape in the MCU, and be able to be used as a tool, like to fetch things, is how he described it in the documentary. That idea, of course, never got beyond Peters spitballing the idea. During one of the costume tests, a Polaroid was taken of Nicolas Cage mid-blink while wearing the Superman suit and a longer-haired wig, which people were critical about, but Superman has not always had the s hair. There have been variations as years have gone by. Also, typically, if you're going to fit an actor for a wig, you usually start it long and then cut it from there. That's just part of it. They're just probably testing the hair color against the actor's skin tone with the suit. That's that's when I eventually get to explaining costumes. That one just missed the cut for last month. This Polaroid that was taken is probably the image you've seen if you've seen anything from this film. It's an image of the actor mid-blink while wearing this kind of funky-looking Superman suit. Admittedly, it doesn't look great, but it's during pre-production, and it was the first version of the suit they had. It's kind of like, it's a rough draft. It's essentially the costume department's version of a rough draft. That image would be kept in a binder while Brian Singer was making 2006 Superman Returns. Anytime he got into a disagreement with Warner Brothers creatively, he'd take that picture out of the binder to remind them that they tried to make this kind of Superman movie, which isn't fair because, again, it was pre-production. After this, and honestly because of it, Tim Burton has only ever done costume tests privately away from the prying eyes of public opinion. Around this time, things started getting a little dicey in the production offices as the film's producer, John Peters, became more and more eccentric and insistent, particularly on the film's design team, which, by the by, is unusual because there was a director attached by this point. You're you're serving the director's vision. That's not what's happening here at all. Peters had produced the first Burton Batman film, and the two of them had gone back and forth quite a bit during that film's production, so much so that Burton had production set up in London to try and get away from him. It didn't work because planes exist, but you can't blame a dude for trying. Other ideas of Peters included Brainiac spending the majority of the film essentially looking like a green Grim Reaper before eventually being revealed as the big-ass spider that Peters wanted. That was the last version of the big-ass spider. It was Brainiac. It looked like Sid, like I said earlier. Another thing Peters wanted that Burton did not was a skull spaceship for Brainiac. Literally a floating skull in space with like some engines growing out the back of its head like it, it looked really dumb. I'm sorry. So yeah, it was literally a floating skull in space populated with a menagerie of aliens. When the film was shut down, before that fact was announced to the crew, Peter stole the 3D model that they had made, and as of 2015, he still had it on display in his very fancy house. 
The design team by this point was referring to Peters as Loudmouth, as he would always show up unannounced where the artists were working with an entourage of people. This included his children. And you know what children like to do? Touch shit that's not theirs. You could tell by like in the documentary when they interviewed these people, they wanted to say way meaner shit, but they have to get jobs so they can't. I would love to know what they were saying behind closed doors because like you could see it in their eyes. They so badly just wanted to call this dude an a-hole and probably so many other things. So props to these dudes for, for their restraint but you could see it behind they, these men were haunted by this man so when the kids would show up they would not acknowledge the men and women whose work that they had rudely interrupted it's not really the kids fault but you know whatever and uh peters would then have the kids like gather around images or models or mock-ups or what have you and have the kids loudly declare which designs they'd liked best Peters would claim this was because he wanted, quote, an honest opinion and children are good for that. And and if you just think like, oh, well, he's just trying stuff. He was just a shitty boss. He would like come around and try and get the, the guys in the design office to like let him demonstrate jujitsu that he was learning just to like show off, I guess. And he would even put members of the staff in headlocks during meetings when they got heated. And if he saw someone working on one of Burton's designs, he tended to put a stop to it. As the Superman Lives endeavor got rockier and rockier between its director and producer, screenwriter Dan Gilroy was brought in to further punch up the script after Terry Semmel, the co-chairman and CEO of the studio at this time, finally got around to reading Strick's script and he hated it. This was three to four months into pre-production, mind you, and they made Tim Burton do the dirty work and fire his collaborator. According to Gilroy, he then worked seven days a week for a year trying to fix the Superman Live script to get it to a point where everybody was happy, and his script would now explore the character dealing with his struggles as being an outsider. In this version, Superman also wouldn't know that he was an alien until later in the film. He knew that he had powers, obviously, but not their source. Another big change in this version would be that Kay would ultimately become the new suit, while also kind of being a sentient version of Superman's birth father. This is a random aside, just because I thought this was a weird fact. Princess Diana died while Gilroy was working on the script, specifically Superman's death scene and everything that went around the death, you know, so the funeral and the public mourning, you know, their protector. So seeing the parallels, Peters had Gilroy come over to his house with the instructions to copy what was being covered on the news for Princess Diana's death and to put it into the script for Superman Lives to give it the feeling of the world weeping. At this point, creative differences began mounting further, this time between the studio and Burton. Warner wanted Superman to fight literal ninjas, so the character would have a kung fu fighting scene. Why? No one can remember, but there are storyboards of the sequence that still exist, so it was for sure a thing. <laughs> After two years of development and countless hours of work being done by screenwriters, designers, Burton, and Peters doing whatever the hell he wanted, seemingly, Warner Brothers would eventually pull the plug. Before that, though, it became clear that the unofficial blank check production had originally been given had now significantly less zeros than they'd been led to believe. Gilroy was actually forced to rewrite action sequences to make them cheaper, and the Fortress of Solitude was scrapped entirely and instead would just feature Superman's tomb. So everything 
basically Superman coming back to life and all of that was originally in the Fortress of Solitude. And now it was just going to happen in like a vault, a big vault, but a vault. In April 1998, on the day of Nicolas Cage's first real camera test with the costume, the final costume, Warner Brothers announced that it was still concerned over the quality of the script for Superman Lives, not to mention its budget, which was looking like $150 to $200 million, depending on the source, and had decided to put the project on hold. In this announcement, it was noted that Nicolas Cage was still going to play Superman and that the blockbuster could, in a best-case scenario, restart production by the autumn. Insider information begs to differ on this narrative, however, as those closer to the situation claimed that Warner Brothers was much more definitive to them in saying that the film was dead entirely. This isn't super surprising considering the fact that Warner Brothers was not in the securest state financially by this juncture due to the costly bomb of Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin, amongst several other films, including 187, Steel, and Mad City. Heard of them? Yeah, me neither. This series of major flops would lead the studio to axe the film, as they were pretty sure based on its current state it would be a bomb too, despite the fact that millions of dollars had already been spent on pre-production. Warner had to go into survival mode, and in this case, they knew Superman couldn't save them. In all, it cost the studio 10 to $17 million in pre-production costs and payouts on Superman Lives to put Superman to rest. And of course, the film never went back into production. John Peters, the producer who wanted his giant-ass spider in Superman Lives, would get his wish sooner rather than later. In 1999, he produced the film Wild Wild West, starring Will Smith. And if you have not seen that movie, which I think gets more hate than it deserves, I do like that movie. The climax of that film features a giant mechanical Spider. This film was also a box office bomb for Warner Brothers, and the spider looked really dumb. That movie does get more hate than it deserves, in my opinion, but the spider was very dumb. In 2011, Peters would have to pay his assistant from the Superman Lives era $3.3 million due to his proven sexual harassment, hostility, and eventual blacklisting that she had suffered at the hands of her former employer. Peters' only producing credits since then have been because he owns the rights to certain IPs and had nothing to do with the film's productions. This was namely some controversy when it came to 2018's A Star is Born because Peters owned the right to the 1976 version starring Barbara Streisand, who he had dated at the time, and he was also a hairstylist for that movie. He actually, John Peters started in this industry as a hairstylist and became a producer, and he says that's why everyone hates him. I don't think that's why. He was an executive producer on 2013's Man of Steel, but was banned from visiting the set by the film's producer, Christopher Nolan. Peters says that he was banned because, quote, my reputation scares these guys. Sure, dude. Tim Burton's gothic reimagining of Sleepy Hollow would release in 1999. And of course, the director has had an illustrious career since Superman Lives didn't work out. This includes Big Fish, Corpse Bride, Alice in Wonderland, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and most recently, the Netflix show Wednesday. Unsurprisingly, Tim Burton has never made another superhero movie. 
Six years after Superman Lives was shut down, Brian Singer, who was coming off the success of 2000's X-Men for Fox, came to Warner with the idea for an entirely different Superman film. By this time, the old guard was gone, you can't release two to three years of straight flops and expect to keep your job, and the studio since then had been trying to make yet another Superman film. The working title for that one was Superman Flyby, such a horrible name, and was going to be directed by Mick G with a script pen by J.J. Abrams, but that project had fallen apart. That same month, Singer was approached by Warner Brothers to pitch his idea for Superman Returns as he was preparing to go on vacation with his X-2 writers, which was the sequel to the 2000 X-Men movie. While in Hawaii, the trio outlined a treatment... And apparently they really liked it because in 2004, Singer was signed on to direct and develop Superman Returns. No public test screenings were done for the finished product. Rather, Singer opted to get his feedback from some, quote, trusted associates, whomever they were. When the film released in the summer of 2006, it did okay. It made about $391.1 million dollars. And it was well received by critics. It's not the best, not the best it could have done box office wise, but it was enough. It was enough to, you know, wet, wet appetites. So a sequel was planned to be released in 2009, but Singer's schedule and the somewhat disappointing box office numbers and honestly time led to the film never being made. In 2013, Man of Steel was released, starring Henry Cavill as the titular character with Zack Snyder at the directing helm. This was meant to be the first film of the DC Cinematic Universe to rival the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which, as you're likely aware, has not gone so well over the last 10 years for Warner Brothers. To date, two Superman animated films have released based on the death of Superman story arc. There was 2007's Superman Doomsday, which greatly altered and condensed the storyline, and in 2018, in the form of an 81-minute animated film directed by Sam Liu and Jake Castorena called The Death of Superman. The latter was a much more faithful adaptation of the source material. Well, actor Henry Cavill announced in October 2022 that he would return as the Man of Steel in the next string of DC movies. Two months later, James Gunn and Cavill, James Gunn is now the head of the co-head of DC, announced that this would not be the case. There will, however, be another Superman film coming out sooner rather than later, written by Gunn himself. The film will, in theory, release in 2025. This is based on Warner's current slate. Will feature a younger version of the character and will be called Superman Legacy. So we'll have to wait a couple more years to see what comes next for the Man of Steel. that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterboxed account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. 
I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. I got a bad review this week because of quote-unquote mispronouncing names in some old episodes. I didn't, by the way, but that never stops people from voicing their opinions. Um, So if you could please take some time, especially on Apple Podcasts, just to be like, hey, she's doing her best. She she does this in a studio apartment by herself. <laughs> I would very much appreciate it. It's free. It takes five seconds of your time. And it, it gives me the dopamine to continue on, to continue this podcast for another week. Um, in order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the Buy Me a Coffee, where you simply just buy me a coffee. This week, I am not quite having coffee. I'm having a horror rose chai from Horror Vibes Coffee in North Hollywood, which if you're in the area, very fun. Very, very cute place. It's all, everything's horror themed. Anyway, this is the end of the thing. This is supposed to be fast. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, the film that Orson Welles tried to make his first Hollywood masterpiece, but never did. Heart of Darkness. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.